0: Philippians chapter 3, 17 through chapter 4, 1. Brothers, join me in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now I tell you even with tears, uh, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory and their shame, with minds set on earthly things
1: how to do something new learn how to do something new I'm thinking like a new sport or or a new hobby right think about that last time that you learned something new and now consider what was the most helpful way for you to learn that thing What was the most helpful way for you to learn that new sport or that new hobby I'll tell you a quick story about the first time that I ever went repelling you guys know what repelling is Right. When you jump off like a like a, a high uh, uh, sort of platform, uh, like maybe the side of a mountain or, or a high tower and you kind of jump backwards. You've got this rope uh, that is is letting you down and there's like all these steps to it. Um, I don't do great with heights. So that was huge for me. I was 14 years old. When I first went rappelling, I was in this youth program called the Young Marines, right? Think like Boy Scouts, but on steroids and run by Marines, right? So this one summer, they sent a group of us down to the Marine Corps Recruit Depot in San Diego. And, and some of you guys, uh, I know Runnels has seen this, some of you guys have seen that big rappel tower uh, right off the 5 Freeway, right? That big rappel tower, it says Marines in big red letters, uh, down the size of 60 feet high, and that's the tower that I rappelled down. And we're standing at the bottom of this thing. We're walking up to it. And I'm like, that's just 60 feet. It looks so high. It's like blocking the sun. I'm standing in its huge shadow. I'm just staring up at it. And I'm like, all right, <laughs> let's do this, right? I'm going I'm to conquer this fear. Let's do this. And so we're standing at the bottom. And at and, and this point, like this is, in this point of my life, this is like the gnarliest thing that I have ever done. Right? The gnarliest thing that I have ever tried to do. And so, what made it really helpful for me was the way that they really just kind of broke it down for us, especially because we were just kids. Like, they spent hours breaking down every little step. Uh, the, 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 the DIs, the drill instructors, they, they laid out all this equipment in front of us. And, and and remember, we're kids, so they're just breaking it down for us really meticulously. One of them standing up there starts explaining what's about to happen. You've got another one off to the side that's demonstrating what we're about to do. They make the harnesses out of rope, and so they showed us step by step how to do that. They walked around to make sure that our harnesses were uh, secure, that we did it right. Uh, and, then, and then he's telling us, explain us how we're going to go up to this platform uh, and then up to another platform and then up to another platform to where we'll just lean backward off from the side of that one and kind of make our way backwards down and all these steps to remember. They were so patient with us. And the most helpful thing was just the way that they took their time demonstrating uh, to us, giving us real life examples right there in front of us. Showed us how to... All the foundational stuff about the leather gloves that you put on so that you don't get uh, rope burn. How you distribute your 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 weight for using the, the, from the top of your body, not the bottom. Otherwise, you're gonna hit the the side of the tower. And you got to keep your arm outstretched to the side if you want to slow down or stop. You you bring it around to the small of your back. You don't put it in front of you, or your hand's gonna get caught in the D ring. And and we practiced every little step with our feet on the ground first, and then we followed his lead and took us up the platform, and then he showed us how to do it up the tower and and then he eased us back and we went down the tower and I survived <laughs> now imagine that whole scenario And instead of demonstrating in front of us with real life examples and showing us the ropes, get it, right? (laughs) Instead of showing us the ropes like that, he he just gave us a piece of paper with written instructions, just words, no pictures, no examples, just sent us up the tower, pushed us off the edge and wished us luck. Probably wouldn't have gone the same, right? Right? my chances of making that drop would significantly decrease. I might not be here today. You'd have a totally different pastor. In the same way, Paul, the author of this letter to the church in Philippi, he says, look, if you want to follow Jesus well, then you need to observe the Christ-like examples that the Lord has graciously placed around you. So far in our teaching series, in the first few chapters of Philippians, we see that Paul has laid out the values of a joyful life in Christ. About you gotta pursue unity, honor, one another. Consider others as more significant than yourself. Don't grumble. Forget what lies behind. Press on forward towards the prize in Christ, of knowing Christ. And here, he says that while we need all those exhortations and teachings, we also learn by observing the lives of people who embody these teachings. Following Jesus isn't just taught, it's also caught. To use that old adage, so we're going to unpack this concept from the next several verses in, 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 in uh, Philippians 3 onto the first chapter of Philippians 4. We're going to look at, first, how Paul talks about a pattern to imitate. Secondly, he wants us to consider a pattern to avoid. Lastly, the good news of where we get the power to change our patterns. So let's look at that first one, a pattern to imitate. Where do we see that? Look at verse 17. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Now, when Paul says join in imitating me, he's touching on this impulse that's just hardwired into all of us. Uh, Even from the earliest age, we all learn to follow the patterns around us, don't we? Like, how do we learn to first talk? By imitating the mouth movements and the sounds of the people around us, right? Like, I'm taking full advantage of that. I'm on a mission to have my youngest son's first words be "dada."? right? <laughs> I set him up in front of me, and I just go, I make sure he's looking at my lips, I go da-da. Da 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 da, over and over again. He starts mimicking my lips, clicking his tongue, and, and every once in a while he goes, da 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 da. I'm like, yeah, we're almost there. That's how we learn how to talk, right? I mean, Alyssa and I are like battling it out between mama and dada because we know that that's how kids learn how to talk. They, they mimic, mimic us, they imitate us now at first glance paul might seem sort of like arrogant and proud when he says this he's like brothers imitate me right brothers imitate me like he's some flawless gold standard but we know that that's actually not how he sees himself if you remember right before this passage in verse 12 and on he straight up says that he's not perfect he says i know i'm not perfect He's just learning and growing and changing in light of the gospel. He's seeking to know Christ more and more like like everyone else who's been impacted by the cross of Christ. And so when he says, imitate me, brothers, what he's saying is, imitate me as I follow hard after Christ. In the ways that I'm doing that, I'm not perfect, he says, I'm not perfect, but I, I, i'm I'm striving to leave behind me what's behind me, and to press forward for the prize of knowing Christ and being known by him. As I'm doing that, imitate me as I follow hard after Christ. Now, that phrase, that that little phrase imitate me is a it can can be an interesting one for us because it might sound sort of off-putting uh, because we we sort of live in the age of authenticity, right? Like we're imitating can sometimes be interpreted as like faking it. There are some things where imitation is like really off-putting, right? Like, Like if you got imitation beef on your burger, maybe you chose that, right? You might be vegan or on a diet. You know it's not real meat, but you're kind of okay with that. But if I put imitation lettuce on your burger, you'd be like, that's gross. Nobody wants that. Like, what's the point of that? Some of us think that that's what Christianity is. That's our experience with the church. We think that Christianity is just a bunch of people faking it, putting on a front. And from the outside looking in, we just wonder, what's the point of that? But that's not the kind of imitating Paul's contending for. He's not contending for like a faux Christianity. He's contending for a Christianity that flows from a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Question to consider this morning. Who in your life is an example of growing in Christ? Like Paul. Who in your life is worth imitating in this way? Who in your life is an example of growing in Christ? Doesn't have to be someone older than you. Doesn't have to be someone smarter than you, more credentialed than you. Doesn't have to be someone who's even been a Christian longer from you, than you. You might be surprised who you think of when you consider who in your life is an example of growing in Christ, pursuing Christ, a model of what it means to acknowledge sin. Like Paul, to repent and to move on from it and press forward. Who in your life is an example of what it means to follow hard after Christ? Paul says, keep your eyes on them. Learn from their example. Look at verse 17 again. He says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Now, you might be visiting this morning thinking like, I, I don't know if I have anyone like that. I'm racking my brain. I don't know that if I have someone like that. And to you, I'd say, man, that's what the church is for. That's one of the things that the local church is for. And if you're a member here, if you've gone through a membership class, you know, for, especially for you, like you've made a covenant to follow Christ in every area of life and to come alongside each other uh, in, in growing more in that. And Paul says, find faithful examples, hang out with them, watch them, ask them to speak into your life. So like, if, if you're someone who wants to learn how to read the Bible, join a group, find someone who has studied it for years, studied the word for years, learn from their pattern of study. If you want to learn how to be a faithful witness in your home or at your workplace, then sit down with someone who's walked that road already. Ask them questions. Small group of us in this room did that with Brian Seitz the other day. He just, he just uh, you know, recently retired from uh, the Huntington uh, Police Department. He was a captain there and, and served uh, as a faithful Christian in, in, in this role for so many years through all many ups and downs of his job. And now he's retiring and thinking about, you know, what does it mean to finish well? And so a group of us got together in his backyard, just a casual conversation over cigars, asking him, what can we learn from you? what can we learn from you? Teach us. Let, we we, we want to we hear from you. Sit down with someone like that who's walked that road and ask questions. Maybe you're battling a certain sin in your life. Find people who used to battle that sin and have stopped. Get their time. Get them on your calendar. Ask them what the Holy Spirit taught them that might be helpful to you. Another thing that we can do in in, in following the faithful example of of others is is reading Christian biographies. I love reading biographies. In some way, that's kind of what we're doing this morning, right? Like we're learning from Paul. The legacy of the apostle and following, the way he followed and pursued and served Jesus. It's helpful when you're reading biographies, especially to make sure you're reading the stories of dead people right? Not to be morbid, but living heroes still have a chance to kind of blow it in the end, right? Those who are, have, are, have already gone before, I mean, you, you know from those in the past who's already finished well. So we can read about Jim Elliot, who gave his life for the gospel, We can learn about men like Pastors Charles Spurgeon, who was called the Prince of Preachers. He was a beast in the pulpit, but he also battled depression and anxiety. We can study the life of John Calvin, who showed us how doctrine leads to humility and joy. You can learn about faithfulness from women like Ann Judson or suffering from Amy Carmichael. Paul says, look around you. You want to know how to live out this joyful Christian life that I've been talking to you about up until this point in my letter? Look at the faithful examples that you have around you. Set your eyes on those examples of following Christ. Learn from their pattern of life. Who do you need to learn from? Who do you need to spend time with? read about, learn about. Who do you need to learn from? Paul says, find them, follow their example. And then, the next two verses, he, he, he kind of transitions into uh, really a sober warning. A sober warning. And verses like these are, are, are man, they can, they can be difficult to preach on. But Paul gives us a sober warning in the next two verses because all of us are following patterns around us, either for better or for worse, right? We also learn that at a young age. In the next couple of verses, Paul starts to unpack a pattern to avoid. He begins in verse 18. He says, For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. You see, Paul transitions at this point into some, some sobering like real talk, hard talk. He's got tears in his eyes. And he says, look, there's also a pattern to avoid, the pattern of those who now walk as enemies of Christ. Why does he have tears in his eyes when he says that? The language that he uses tells us that Paul knew these people well. He knew them well. The scholars I was studying this week on this text, they they say that these were likely leaders in the Philippian church at some point. They looked Christian on the outside, but the substance of their lives showed that in reality, they were just pretenders. And Paul calls them enemies of the cross, enemies of the cross of Christ. It's this reality that in every church, there could be real Christians who've been justified by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but then there could also be people who have the label of Christian, they hang out with Christians, they serve with Christians, but in the end, they don't bear the real fruit of being in Christ man i 'm aware that this is like not a popular topic to hear, right you don 't grow mega churches by preaching verses like this it 's not exactly a feel good passage like like nobody nobody has on that the verse like many I told you are now enemies of Christ like on their coffee mugs at home. <laughs> but man, my my, my job is to preach the whole counsel of God's Word. And in Philippians 3, verse 18 and 19, what we see is a sober warning. Not from a self-righteous religious zealot. If you remember from early on in Philippians 3, he's like, I put that self-righteous religion behind me. But from a man who's following hard after Christ, And is grieved at the lack of fruitfulness in those that he used to consider comrades, but now he calls enemies of the cross of Christ. You see, in God's kingdom, the baby Christian with an earnest desire to just grow more and more in the grace of God is far more mature than the Christian with theology credentials who's just sort of going through the motions. And here, Paul says, there are some who claim to know the cross with their mouths, but their hearts don't actually reflect it. And so they're really making a mockery of the cross. That's why he calls them enemies of the cross. You've got to imagine when Paul wrote those words. These were people that he labored with, people that he knew well, friends of his, comrades of his. And he's writing this letter in a prison cell to this church that he loves. And he knows that this church knows these, these men and, and, and women too. And Paul is he's writing these words. You gotta imagine that when he writes, now they walk as enemies of the cross, he must have paused. Trembled with a lump in his throat, and he got tears in his eyes that he discloses to us. Man, I get that. I get that. It breaks my heart to think that there could be some in this room that I know and love and serve with that may in the end be considered an enemy of the cross of Christ. It grieves Paul's heart as their pastor because he loves them. He understands the weight of this. He understands the, the hard truths in, 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 that we read about from the author of Hebrews. and Hebrews 10, uh, it's probably one of the most sobering warnings in the New Testament. In Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 28, or 26 through 27, it says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So look, if you receive the knowledge of the truth of the gospel, but you go on deliberately sinning, there's no sacrifice for you but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Paul says, beware of those who are not humble. They're not repentant. They're not sorry for their sin, but they just stubbornly say, look, I'm gonna do it my way. No one can change my mind. Paul's art aches for them. He's got tears for them. He says it this way, he says they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. It's a sobering reality for us. An enemy of the cross of Christ is not, you know, like like a a Richard Dawkins or a Sam Harris on a New York Times bestseller list, not somebody that sets up like an atheist blog on the internet and shares it all through all the social medias, right? Right? In this verse, enemies of the cross of Christ were Paul's friends at one point. But instead of living like the cross has changed everything for them, they now live as though the cross means nothing to them. They might even still call them Christians, themselves Christians. They might even still go to church. But they're living as though the cross means nothing to them. And Paul says, you're making a mockery of the cross. You're an enemy of the cross. Ask yourself, what difference has the cross of Jesus made in my life? What difference has the cross of Jesus made in my life? Assess yourself according to Paul's warning. He says, I want you to follow the godly examples because I don't want this that's happened to others that I know to happen to you. Assess yourself. What difference has the cross of Christ made in my life? My purpose for living, how has that changed? My passions, my desires, how have those changed? I'll tell you guys a a, a story long before... um, Long before I ever felt called to plant this church, like even before I knew what church planting was, that that was even a thing, I had this friend who was a really good friend of mine. And he wanted to plant a church. He wanted to plant a church. He'd moved out uh, to the Midwest, was going to seminary, fell in love uh, with a girl, got married, uh, was still attending seminary at this time, and, and, and felt like he, you know, God was stirring in his heart some of the things that he was learning out there. And he's like, man, I want to plant a church like this in Orange County. And I was supposed to be on his church planting team. That's how I started learning about church planting me him and a few others we'd jump on this conference call that 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 he would schedule we'd pray for Orange County we'd dream about a gospel-centered church in the area he told us you know when he's done with seminary he wants to move back down to South Orange County with his new wife from the Midwest and we'd all start this church together that was the plan till one day he decided to leave his wife and daughter, drop his dream of church planning so he could just scan the city and have sex with tons of women, feed into his addiction that he'd been hiding secret for so long. You know what's wild? For about a year after that, he still went to church. He found a bigger church that he could hide at where he wouldn't be known. And he's like, you know, I'm gonna follow Jesus in, 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 in on Sundays like this. Man, I'm not giving the Lord this area of my life. I love this too much. Broke my heart. His daughter, his firstborn, was born like just, just about a week apart from my daughter. So I'm like watching my girl grow up, thinking about his daughter, planting this church, thinking about these conversations that we used to have. Now, how does that happen? How does that happen? Paul tells us how one becomes an enemy of the cross. Look at at verse 19. He says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Let's walk through those for a moment. When he says their end is destruction, I just want to point out again, he's being honest here. He's being honest. Look, I, I know that sometimes there's, there's, there's like fire and brimstone preachers where like all they want to talk is about the judgment to come, right? Like that's all that they, they, they know here, right? But some of us go to the other side of the pendulum to where we're like, well, we don't want to be associated with those guys. And so all we'll do is preach compassion and mercy and love. But Paul here, we see that what he models for us, he's honest about the truth, but he's still compassionate. He's got tears in his eyes. Paul has both, just like Jesus, compassion and truth. He doesn't be truth over the head with a self-right, like a self-righteous way without compassion. But he also doesn't ignore the truth for the sake of compassion where he's not honest about our flaws and our need for grace and change. Paul's got both. He says their end is destruction. They're enemies of the cross and he's got tears in his eyes. And then he says their God is their belly. Now what does that mean? Their God means what they worship, what they come under the authority of. He says it's is their their belly. Now he's using a, a metaphor for here. That, that word belly, ko, koilia, it's this first century Greek euphemism for the place that our fleshly appetites come from. Right? So think of fleshly appetites like food, drink, sex. Are those bad things? No, not in the slightest. These are gifts from God given for our pleasure to be enjoyed, for our pleasure and for his glory. Jesus' first miracle, he turned water into what? Wine. Last supper, Jesus breaks what? Bread. They share a meal together. He pours wine around the table. He passes a cup around. Sex is a gift for those in a marriage covenant to express the unique union that they have. These are gifts from God meant to be enjoyed. But when you take these good gifts out of their good and proper context and you come under the authority of them to where you say whatever these fleshly appetites tell me that's where I'm going. When they become your God then food turns to gluttony or eating disorders. Drink turns to drunkenness. Sex turns to shame, abuse, addiction. Paul says that's what happened to these enemies of the cross. They call Jesus Lord with their mouths, But in their hearts, their God was their belly. And he says they glory in their shame. They glory in their shame. Not only is their God their belly, but they actually glory in their shame. It's one thing to sin in your fleshly appetites, but it's something more to glory in it, to boast about it, to find humor in it, to Instagram it. When the things of earth Become your God, your authority, the things that you turn to for comfort and help. Then what that becomes, what that what that thing turns into, is really your functional savior. It's a way of saying, "Look, I know that something's not right in me, but man, what Jesus asked for—dying to myself—is just too much for me, so." If I do this, that makes me feel better about myself. That makes things feel more right in the world. Becomes a functional savior. And Paul says with tears in his eyes, don't follow that pattern. Don't follow that pattern. Run to Jesus. Hunger for him. Be satisfied in him. Ask yourself, where do I run to satisfy my soul? What are the things that I run to, the people that I run to, the situations that I run to to satisfy my soul? Where Jesus is not enough, and I also need this. What do your patterns reveal about your life? What do your patterns reveal about your life? What would others around you, the people that you spend time with, when they're looking in, what would they assume matters most to you because of the pattern of your life? If they spend enough time with you, hopefully it's that you're following hard after Christ. And if it's not, what are we doing? Heed Paul's warning. He's being truthful, but he's being compassionate. He's got tears in his eyes. He says this matters so much. He says there is a pattern to imitate, but there's also a pattern to avoid. Don't set your mind on earthly things, he says. Instead, look forward and stand firm in Christ. If we were to stop right here at verse 19, for some of us, it might be sort of a downer of a sermon, right? I get that. I think Paul gets that too. That's why he turns to some words of hope and joy. In verse 20 and 21, where we see where we get the power to change our patterns. Point three, the power to change our patterns. In verse 20, read it with me. He says, but our citizenship, our citizenship, where we belong is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. What is that saying? You know where we get the power to change our patterns? By looking to Jesus, by longing for his return, looking to Jesus, the one who has the power to change us in the fullest sense, the one who is bringing all things under his redemptive rule and reign. He says, Paul says, remember that your citizenship is there, your hope is not in your past. Because we've all blown it, Paul included. Your hope is not in your present because we still blow it. Our hope is in a person. The person who entered history. Suffered in our place for our sins to bring us home. Paul says, remember that your citizenship is in heaven. You know what you say when you meet someone new that's got like this thick accent? Like you're talking to them, they, they, you, you start to notice like, whoa, he's got a thick accent, right? Like what do you ask them? Like, hey, where are you from? <laughs> right? You're like, that's new, where where are you from? I remember in college, I went on this trip to, to London with my family, and on this one night, I was hanging out with this, this group of locals. And I started talking, and one of them goes, hey, are you from California? Are you from California? And I'm like, how'd you know, right? How, how'd you know? And he, and he goes, it's because of your accent. And I'm thinking like, I don't have an accent. You have an accent, right? (laughs) And I learned something that day. Apparently, I have an accent because I'm from California. It's become so ubiquitous to me because I just grew up around it. In the same way, Paul's alluding to the fact that Jesus changes the pattern of your life in a manner that should make people go, huh, that's different. But instead of telling us where you're from, your pattern of life should say something about where you're headed, about where your real home is. See, when people are are in your presence, when people are in your presence, just around you, your values, your words, your pattern should point them to your home in heaven the way that you care for the vulnerable the way that you speak truth but show compassion the way you pursue holiness the way that you show honor to each other the way that you care for one another the way that you help each other grow should make people go man these people are different this dude's sort of different this woman is different. She's like, not of this world. That is my prayer for our church community. Jesus says that, that we should be in this world, but not of the world. Now, Some of us, I mean, we, we, we kind of teeter on that pendulum, right? We're going to be like, no, we're going to prove to everyone that we're not of this world. And then everyone just kind of looks in and is just like, man, those... Those people are kind of strange. I don't know that I could ever hang with them. And there's other of of us that are like, no, because I want people to know Jesus, because I don't want people to think that I'm weird and therefore think Jesus is weird, I'm going to be just like them. And you've got people around you looking in and saying, man, if Jesus doesn't really make a difference in someone's life, why do I need him? But Jesus says, no, we should be in this world. Have the markers, the bearings of this world, but also knowing that our home is not of this world. If you're faithfully following Jesus, there should be things in your pattern of life that are attractive to those who don't know Jesus. But there should also be things in your life that just have people scratching their head and be like, oh, that's strange. And our prayer is that they will come to say, hey, I want to know more about that. I want to know more about that. That's my prayer for our church, for our community, for our members, that we would give the world a glimpse of the kingdom to come with their lives and the way we interact with one another. There's this old saying that if you're too heavenly-minded, you'll be of no earthly good. I think that's complete nonsense. Paul thinks that's complete nonsense. It's actually, if you are properly heavenly-minded, then you will be of supreme earthly good. C.S. Lewis articulates it better. In mere Christianity, he says, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were actually just those who thought most of the next. And then he says, it is actually since Christians today have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Does your citizenship in heaven occupy your mind? Does your home, your citizenship in heaven occupy your mind? Paul says, follow this pattern, avoid this pattern, but remember our citizenship is in heaven. And we await a savior. Does your citizenship in heaven occupy your mind? Are you mindful of where you're headed? And does that say something about how you live today? Not only do we live out heaven's values, but we also long for heaven's Lord. Paul says we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform us to glory. That is the hope that we live by. Do you belong to Christ? Then He will keep you to the end. Never lose the wonder of the resurrection, the power of the resurrection. Live in light of your true citizenship. I want you to look now the way that he closes this thought in chapter 4, verse 1. It's almost, it's almost just like strange and comical how much like love language that Paul uses in this one verse. Read it with me. You can tell he's thinking about these enemies of the cross that used to be his friends, and now he's turning his attention to these people that he's like saying, I don't want you to fall into that unhealthy pattern. And in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, Therefore, my brothers, in light of what I said, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This verse is oozing with Paul's love for this church, <laughs> This church is forever bonded with him because of their partnership in the gospel. And Paul wants us to see, in the same way, know that you are not alone. Know that you're not alone. You have brothers, you have sisters. Paul says, I love loved and long to be with you. You're my joy and my crown. You're my beloved. That's what the church is for. To say, hey, look, we're in this together. To grow together. To celebrate Jesus who's at work in us together. Together yes our patterns need to change but it's not a pattern that changes us it's not a pattern that's our ultimate hope it's a person it's looking to jesus kevin DeYoung says it this way he says god doesn't ask us to attain to what we're not he only calls us to accomplish what already is Pursuit of holiness is not a quixotic effort to do just what Jesus did. It's the fight to live out the life that, he's already, that has already been made alive in Christ. He's saying, look, you don't follow the pattern to get Jesus. You follow the pattern because of Jesus. You have already been made alive in Christ. He's our Savior and our Lord, Paul says, so stand firm in Him. Stand firm in Him. Are you looking to Him? Is the pattern of your life pointing to Him? Is the pattern of your life pointing your family to Him, your friends to Him, your neighbors to Him? In all your perfections, imperfections, Paul says, stand firm in the Lord. Jesus is the only perfect one. He's the only perfect one. Our Savior and Lord, who lived, died, and rose to bridge the gap between what we say we believe and how we're actually going to live. The one who delivers us from a destiny of destruction to a home in heaven, a hope and a joy that is unshakable. And so I want you to consider Paul's exhortation. Follow the example of the pattern of those who are faithful around you. I want you to consider. His sober warning, avoid the pattern of those who are now enemies of the cross. But I also need you to consider that the only power we have, the only hope that we have, is the one in whom Paul says we need to stand firm in our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're weary this morning and burdened and feel like you need rest, run to Jesus. If you feel worthless and wonder if God still cares, run to Jesus. If you keep failing again and again and again and you need strength, run to Jesus. If you sin and need a Savior, run to Jesus. And when you truly run after him, you won't do it perfectly, but you will be embraced and kept by him perfectly. So stand firm in him and rest in his grace. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, We'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations, or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.